Hello, welcome to the podcast at Chesbro Baptist Church. We're continuing in our Sunday morning series on the life of Joseph. Our text verse this morning is Genesis 42, 11, and the title of the message is The Awakening of Joseph's Brothers. Please enjoy. Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 42 this morning, Genesis chapter 42, and uh, we're going to begin and continue into our uh, series in the life of Joseph. We just got a couple more weeks left in the life of Joseph, and we'll be uh, be through that series, Genesis chapter 42, and uh, some of you know that uh, I've been batching it this week. Emily and the kids have been up in Memphis with my in-laws, and uh, they've been up there, so I've been batching it. It's just been horrible. I've just been, uh, you know, like a lost puppy. But, uh, but uh, I was about, <laughs> well, it's live. See, no, she's right there. She's watching now. And, uh, well, I was going to tell you all something, but now that I know my wife's probably watching, I probably shouldn't tell you. Genesis chapter 42 Genesis chapter 40. I really was about to tell you something. I'm not now. Genesis chapter 42 and uh, the life of Joseph. If you have your places in Genesis chapter 42, I'm going to ask you one last time to please stand and respect and reverence to the word of God. And uh, we're going to read one verse, pray and sit back down. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 42 and verse 11, We are all one man's sons. We are true men. Thy servants are no spies. Now, of course, this is Joseph's brothers talking to Joseph, but they don't know it's Joseph. To them, it's just the prime minister of Egypt. And the title of the message this morning is The Awakening of Joseph's Brothers. The Awakening of Joseph's Brothers. God not only had something good in store for Joseph, God had something good in store for those that wronged him. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you'd bless the message this morning. I pray the power of God would fill this place and we could feel the presence of the Holy Spirit this morning. Be with us, clear our minds and our hearts to take in the word of God today. In Jesus Christ's precious name I pray, amen. You may be seated. I have never been a morning person. If my wife was here, insert Emily laugh now. And uh, so I've never been a morning person. And I can just remember my mom coming to me trying to get me out of bed uh, to go to school and to catch the bus and just coming to me time after time after time trying to get me up and I would I would get up and I'd act like I was gonna get out of bed and I'd put one leg out and then she'd leave the room and I'd lay back down and uh, so you know that's just how I was and I'd just get up and I'd be asleep and I'd be go up and I'd get my 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 cherry pop tart my big glass of milk and I'd eat it and I'd be sleepy on the bus and man I just I've never been a morning person I needed something to wake me up 
Well, a couple of times she got, she got tired of that, and so after about two times, she'd come back in there with the belt. I didn't have a problem after that. And uh, so I would get up, I would get up on, on out of the bed uh, when she'd come in there with that leather strap, and uh, so I didn't have a problem after that. But this idea of awakening, an awakening is preceded by a period of slumber. It's preceded by a period of passiveness. So we have a long period of slumber. We have a long period of very passiveness, of inactivity. And then we have an awakening. If you could ever read any material on the Great Awakening, great awakening in America, you need to read some of that material. The Great Awakening happened in America in the 1700s. And it was great preachers like George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards that would preach. And these great revivals were, were going across the nation. And man, that's what we need today. Our nation needs revival in the worst way. Our nation needs Jesus Christ in the worst way. And how we wish we could have a great revival in America like that great awakening uh, in the 1700s in America. I wish we could have that today. But let me tell you something. You can read in history books about the great awakening. But here in the Bible, we're going to read about the grain awakening. The grain awakening is when Joseph's brothers started to starve and they had to go to Egypt to Joseph for food through the providence of Almighty God. And so this is the grain awakening that we're going to look at. The word that we're going to focus on this morning is this word repentance. This is something our country desperately needs. We've got a lot of remorse. But we know repentance. Got a lot of remorse, but no repentance. Repentance is this idea. It means to change one's mind, to turn. And that's what repentance is. The Latin uh, corresponding word means to recover one's senses. Joseph's brothers are about to have their spiritual senses awakened. Joseph's brothers are about to have their spiritual senses recovered. And true repentance is about to take place in the lives of Joseph's brothers. I mean, for years, their, their guilt slumbered right under the surface. They kept that guilt of what they did to Joseph and that guilt of when they sold him into slavery. They took that guilt and they pushed it down and they kept it below the surface of everyday life. And man, they thought they had it under control. Man, it had been years since they had even thought about it. But then all of a sudden they're standing before Joseph, but they don't know it's Joseph. They're standing before the prime minister of Egypt and he causes a little trouble in their life. And when just a little trouble stirs up, all of a sudden now they're thinking about Joseph. That's, that's the first place their mind went. This is happening to us because of what we did to Joseph. And that was decades, it was years ago. It was a long time ago. Man, we've read about how they sold Joseph into slavery. And when they sold Joseph into slavery, they thought they were rid of their problem. They thought, oh, we don't have to worry about bowing down to this dreamer anymore. But God had other plans 
See, plans that were unknown to Joseph's brothers, plans that were unknown to Joseph's parents, and yea, plans that were unknown to Joseph himself. And now all the years of suffering and all the years of separation, God would take those and use those for good, not only for Joseph, but use those for good to those that wronged him. This is good meant for those who wronged Joseph. And aren't you glad you serve a merciful God? Aren't you glad that no matter how many times you disappoint him, no matter how many times you go back on your word, no matter how many times you tell God, God, I'm not going to do it anymore, and you do it again, God's still a merciful God. If I was God, I'd be done dead. I'd be out of here. I, don't have, I wouldn't have the patience, but I serve a gracious God. I serve a kind God. I serve a merciful God this morning. Genesis, and we're going to look through this, so I do want you to keep your Bibles open today because we're going to kind of read through this story. Genesis 42 and 21. And they said one to another, We are verily guilty concerning our brother. In that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear. <clears throat> therefore, in this distress, therefore is this distress come upon us. It's right here when they said we are verily guilty concerning our brother. The awakening begins right here. Why? Because they had an admission of guilt. They had a admission of guilt. You see, that's where this awakening of repentance comes from. It's an admission of guilt. And when an admission of guilt comes, the door is cracked open and, and, and it's cracked open for more reviving. It's cracked open for more awakening. So this is what Joseph did. Joseph said, look, I'm going to keep Simeon and I'm going to send you back. And if you are the true men that you say you are, then I want you to go get your brother Benjamin that you told me about. I want you to bring him back to me so I can see that you are the true men that you claim to be. You know, and, and, and the, re the reason why Joseph gave them this task and put them through this is because Joseph wanted to see if Joseph's brothers had learned anything. He wanted to see if jo Joseph wanted to see if his brothers had learned anything. Will they sacrifice Benjamin just like they sacrificed Joseph? Will they do the same thing to him, that, that to his brother, that they had did to him is what he wants to see. Not only that, but Joseph gives them something that they longed so much for, but when they got it, they didn't, they didn't love it so much anymore. Verse number 26 of Genesis 42. And they laded their asses with the corn and departed thence. And as one of them opened his sack to give his ass provender in the end, he espied his money, for behold, it was in his sack's mouth. And he said unto his brethren, My money is restored, and lo, it is even in my sack. And their heart failed them, and they were afraid, saying one to another, What is this that God hath done unto us? Things were happening very quickly in their lives. And as things were happening, and as they tried, the harder they tried to dig themselves out of this mess, the deeper they got. And isn't that the case with sin? 
The harder you try to hide it, the more it's gonna, the more it's gonna show to everybody. And you hide it as best you can for as long as you can, but then one day it rises to the surface, and the harder you try to get away from it, the harder you try to hide it, the more people find out about it, the more people see it. Now surely the Egyptian ruler would think that they stole their money back. So now food, run low, food runs low again and it's time for them to go back to Egypt. Simeon's in the prison in Egypt. They run out of food again and they go to Jacob and they said, Jacob, it's time. We have to take Benjamin. We have to take him back. We got to show this Egyptian ruler that we didn't lie to him. We got to take Benjamin. And old Jacob, he didn't want to give up Benjamin. He's already lost Joseph. He doesn't want to lose Benjamin too. And then Reuben says something very, very stupid. Reuben gives a very empty promise. And Reuben says, you know, Dad, if we don't bring your son back, you can have one of my sons. Such an empty, foolish thing that doesn't mean anything. It meant that, that meant absolutely nothing. It took the elder brother. It took Judah to stand up. And Judah said, Dad, if I don't bring Benjamin back, you, I will give you my life in return. Now that meant something. Judah is putting himself on the line in front of his dad saying, Dad, if I don't bring Benjamin back, I will lay my life down. Man, it's just the same guy that so callously lied to his dad about Joseph so many years ago. Who walked into that house and looked at daddy in his eyes and had the coat of many colors stained red with blood and, and told him your son Joseph was ripped to peace by, by animals and watched his dad break down and cry and sob and mourn for his son and, and just so callously watched this happen. Is this the same guy? Now, so many years later, he's willing to lay his own life on the line for one of his own brothers? Well, maybe something is beginning to happen in the lives of Joseph's brothers. Maybe something is beginning to change. Genesis 43 and verse number 8. And Judah said unto Israel his father, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and thou and our little ones. And I will be surety for him. Of my hand shalt thou require him. If I bring him not up unto thee and set him before thee, then let me bear the blame forever. You see, great progress is beginning to happen in the lives of Joseph's brothers. And what God was patiently doing with them is God was patiently bringing them to the place of true repentance. True repentance is so far beyond remorse. So far beyond remorse. Now they were at the place where they could take Benjamin to Joseph. Now, here's the question. Would they sacrifice Benjamin just like they sacrificed Joseph? Had they really changed? If they have changed, what's the next step? Confrontation and confession. You see, I told you this two weeks ago. Joseph is working very hard to show them the lawlessness in their own heart 
while at the same time showing them the love in His. And Joseph is a picture of Jesus Christ, and he does the same thing for us. He desires so much to show us our need for a Savior, to show us our need for Him, and to show us the lawlessness in our hearts and the love that is in His. This is what Joseph is doing. Now let me tell you something. What would be the easy thing for Joseph to do? The easy thing for Joseph to, to do would be to provide for them physically. Just give them the food. Just give them the money. Just give them the food. Just provide for them physically, Joseph. Why are you putting them through this? A lot of people say that Joseph is cruel, that he's doing all this. Why, you know, but why don't you just give them the food? Why don't you do that? Why don't you just provide for them physically? Well, the reason why Joseph didn't provide for them physically is because he knew he needed to provide for them spiritually too. You see, you may be going through a famine in your life and at the snap of a finger, at the thought in your head, God could make the Nile River flow once again and that famine could go away. But what you would miss out on is what God spiritually has for you. And that's what a lot of prosperity gospels out there are preaching. They're preaching, hey, uh, you, you're, you, if you follow God, you'll have your bills paid and you'll have the nice car that you want and you'll have the four-wheeler and you'll have the shotgun and you'll have the bass boat and you'll have all those things and you'll have the great vacations and you'll have all these things if you follow God. All your physical needs will be met. So they preach nothing but prosperity, but they never preach on sin, and they never preach on repentance, and they never preach on pride, and they never preach on anything negative. So everybody gets provided for physically and not spiritually. Joseph said, yeah, I could give them the food. I could meet their physical needs, but what about their spiritual needs? Joseph cared too much about them to just give them the food and let them go. God does the same for you. He cares too much about you to make sure your bills are paid every week if you've got a spiritual lesson he needs to teach you. He's more concerned about you growing spiritually as a Christian than you not getting that pink slip in the mail that you're past due. He's more concerned with you learning a spiritual lesson. Oh, you may be going through a famine in your life. Man, at any time, God could make the Nile rivers flow again and that famine would be over. But what would you miss out on? You see, God longs to be so much more than just your supplier. He wants to be your savior. Not just your supplier. He's waiting for more than remorse from us. He wants repentance from us. But before you repent, there must be a brutal, a brutal recognition of sin. There must be a brutal recognition of sin. What we're going to do this morning is we're just going to go through the scripture little verse by verse and a few verses here, a few verses there. We're going to read through the scripture and I've got it kind of sectioned off and we'll talk about it as we go through it. But I want you to see the story this morning. The first section of my message this morning is called the bewilderment of Joseph's brothers. 
You see, Joseph was very purposeful in his actions, and it was the intent of bringing his brothers back into the right fellowship. So let's look at the steps that unfolded here. We're going to start in Genesis 43 and verse number 15. We're going to call this an undeserved feast. An undeserved feast. And the men took that present, and they took double money in their hand, and Benjamin and rose up and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the ruler of his house, Bring these men home and slay and make ready, for these men shall dine with me at noon. And the man did as Joseph bade, and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. Now, they were about to have a feast. They were about to have what my family calls, they're about to get put on a feed bag. Okay, uh, they were going to put on a feed bag and, and they were going to have a feast and they were getting ready to have Sunday dinner and they were going to drop the fried chicken and have the mashed potatoes and gravy and the red beans and rice and they were getting ready to throw down at the supper table and they were getting ready for all this. But I want you to see that this was an undeserved feast. The responsibility for all of this lay on Joseph. Joseph was the one who spread the feast. He was the one who bore the cost. He was the one who initiated the opportunity. He was the one who provided the sacrifice. Joseph set the table and all Joseph's brothers had to do was go. They didn't have to do anything else. And to me, this mirrors the gospel. God did everything for us. Jesus did everything for us. He's the one who set the table. He's the one who spread the feast. He's the one who bore the cost. He was the, even the one who initiated the opportunity. You know, you didn't get saved unless God the Father called you to get saved. He, he was the one who initiated the opportunity. He was the one who provided the sacrifice. His son on the cross of Calvary. Man, Jesus did it all. God did it all. All we had to do was show up. Isn't that great? 1 John 4, 19. We loved him because he first loved us. Next, in verse number 18, we've got what I call unconcealed fear. The men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house. And they said, because the money that was returned in our sacks at the first time are we brought in, that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for bondmen and our asses. You see, Joseph's brothers were just bought, brought into a royal palace home. They walked in this great majestic house that Joseph lived in and they walked into the presence of unfettered power and they saw all the opulence and they saw all the splendor and they saw all the wealth and they saw all the gold and all the jewels and in the presence of such power they were very afraid. You know, the Apostle John, if you read the book of Revelation, we're going through Revelation on Wednesday nights here at the church. And when you go through the book of Revelation, you read the first chapter and you see how what, what, what it was like when John entered in to the presence of Jesus Christ. 
The Bible says in Revelation 1.14, His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like into a fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as a sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid right his right hand upon me saying unto me fear not I am the first and the last I am he that liveth and was dead and behold I am alive forevermore amen and have the keys of hell and death the point is when you are in the presence of God you know it you know when you're in the presence of God you know when you're in the presence of truth <clears throat> so what happens to us when we were in the presence of God we're in the presence of truth and we're unrepentant Okay, uh, at this moment, because at this moment, Joseph's brothers were unrepentant still. And even though God was working in their life for them to be not so, they were still unrepentant at this time. What happens when you're in the presence of God and you're unrepentant is you become fearful. But this isn't a godly fear. This is a fleshly fear. You know why? Because your flesh does not want you to be right with God. Your flesh does not want you to have a relationship with Jesus Christ and it will fight you tooth and nail to make sure you do not repent of that sin. So your flesh begins to be scared. What happens next is you try to remedy the dilemma without addressing the problem. They walked into that house and they saw all this glory and splendor. And the Bible says they feared. What was the reason for their fear? Their fear was that, oh, well, he saw the money in our sacks and he's going to turn us into slaves because of that. And that wasn't the issue. That wasn't the problem. That wasn't the problem at all. You see, that was just an excuse. And right before you get ready to repent, your flesh is going to throw every excuse at you so you won't do it. My sin is not that bad. I'm not hurting anybody but me. Man, you know what? I got to put me first. I got to look out for me. Man, what will people think? Man, they're going to talk about me behind my back. But those are just excuses. And what's really going on is your flesh is kicking and screaming because it knows you're in the presence of God and it knows that all the spirit inside of you wants to repent and your flesh does not want you to repent of your sin. Next, we have an understandable formality. Verse 25 in Genesis 43. And they made ready the present against Joseph came at noon for they heard that they should eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house, and they bowed them and they bowed themselves to him in the earth. You know, they bowed themselves to Joseph. Joseph had dreamed twice that they would do this, and here they are bowing to him. But even though they're bowing to him, Joseph knew that they weren't yet there at genuine repentance they weren't quite there yet and what I equate this to is somebody who's kind of going through the motions but they're not really there just yet 
They're going through the motions. Maybe they're coming to church. Maybe they're reading their Bible here and there. They're doing this, but there's still that unrepentance inside of them. They're going through the acts of repentance, but there's not genuine repentance. They're bowing before Joseph, but they really haven't repented yet. But you know what? Joseph was still waiting for them. Joseph had a, had, a place set, had a place set for them. And what I equate that to is God is saying, look, you may be unrepentant right now, but I'm going to patiently wait for you because when you're ready to repent, when you're ready to leave that sin at the altar and walk away from that sin, when you're ready to do that, I will be here and I will welcome you with open arms and I have a place set for you and I have something for you with patience, with the... Uh, you see, still unrepentant, he prepares for when you are repentant. Next, verse 30, we have unrevealed feelings. And Joseph made haste, for his bowels did yearn upon his brother. And he sought where to weep, and he entered into his chamber and wept there. And he washed his face and went out and refrained himself and said, Set on bread. See, Joseph wanted restoration very, very badly. He yearned for restoration. But he knew he couldn't just drop everything he'd done. He had been through all this and he knew that he had to continue with this if he was going to bring his brothers to the place where they could be restored. How characteristic is that of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who yearns to be restored with us. Matthew 23, 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them, are sin, the stonest them that are sent unto thee. How often uh, would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Joseph, with loving patience, restrained his feelings for his brothers until they were ready to come to him. Verse 33, we've got an uncanny familiarity. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth, and the men marveled at one another. Here's what happened. They get in here and get ready for the feast, and Joseph said, okay, you sit here, you sit here, you sit here, you sit here, and he sat them all down. Well, here's the thing. He sat them down according to their order of birth. And this is what the men marveled at. I mean, because, I mean, it, these were a lot of kids, and they were born very close together. And it was kind of hard to tell who the oldest one was. Some of the older kids, they kind of looked the same age. And he sat them down exactly according to their birthright. It's as if he knew. And that's what they were marveling at. It's as if he knew. You know what I equate that to? You go in into a preaching service. And hearing a preacher preach on something that's going on in your life and you say to yourself, man, there's no way he knows what's going on in my life. I haven't told anybody. There's no way he can know that. Or you go to a Bible study and the Bible teacher stands up and they're systematically working their way through a book and it just so happens on the day you decide to go to Bible study that that one verse pops up that applies to your life. You could have been there on any other day and you'd have missed it, but you came just on that day just for you. I'm going to tell you something. 
I don't, I've said this before. I don't stand in the back with a, a camera out there seeing who walks in. Ooh, so-and-so's here. Let me, let me preach this this morning. That's not what I do. Let me say something. The Holy Spirit knows. The Holy Spirit knows. God, and when that happens, God is preparing you for repentance. Next, verse 34, we have unusual favor. And he took and sent the messes unto them from before him. But Benjamin's mess was five times as so much as any of theirs. Now, I read this story when I was a kid. I'd read this story when I was a kid, and you know what I would think? I would think, you know why Joseph gave Benjamin five times more food than anybody else? Because he just loved him. He missed him, and he just loved Benjamin so much, I'm just going to give Benjamin all the food. But that's not what's going on. That's not what's happening. You know what he's doing? He's giving Benjamin unmerited favor. Because when he was a kid, he got unmerited favor, and his brothers acted very badly toward him. So now he's giving Benjamin unmerited favor because he wants to see how his brothers react. So he gives Benjamin this extra food, and he watches his brothers. He watches their eyes. He watches their movement. They don't know that he can understand their language. And so he listens to them speak. He's looking for any envy. He's looking for any jealousy. He wants to know if they will react badly to his unmerited favor, just like they reacted badly to his. End of verse 34, we have unrestrained fellowship. And they drank and were merry with him. Joseph got his answer. The answer was very clear. His brothers had learned. They didn't look down at Benjamin anymore. And they didn't say, man, Benjamin, he, he got five times what we got. This guy's been putting us through the ringer. But he's given this kid down here more than us. What's up with that? That's not how they reacted. They were happy that Benjamin got all that food. And they sat and they rejoiced. And they had a feast as if there was no famine. And that's the kind of feast that God wants to have with his children. A feast as if there's no famine. They enjoyed the presence of the great provider. They could taste and see that the Lord of the land was good. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord. So the steps of their restoration were almost complete. But not quite yet. Joseph had one final test. And this, this was Joseph's whole reason for bringing Benjamin to Egypt was for this test. He wanted to see if his brothers had really changed. He wanted to see if they were really repentant. One more test remained. The second part of my message we're going to call the brokenness of Joseph's brothers. First we have a question. What would they do with Benjamin? Uh, chapter 44 4 and verse 1. And he commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sack with food, as much as they can carry, and put every man's money in the sack's mouth, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the sack's mouth of the youngest, and his corn money, 
And he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. Man, Joseph wanted to know if given the opportunity, would they save their own necks or would they save Benjamin? Next, we have the confrontation. Who would they protect? Verse 10 of chapter 44. And he said, Now also let it be according unto your words. He with whom it is found shall be my servant and shall be blameless. Then they speedily took down every man his sack to the ground and opened every man his sack and searched and began at the eldest and left at the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. So what happened is is Joseph sent his servants to track down his brothers. And they said, Joseph said that his silver cup is missing. One of you took it. Whoever took it is guilty and the rest can go free. So they started at the eldest and they looked in his sack. And all the way down they looked in all the sacks. And when they got to Benjamin they opened the sack and the cup was in there. The Bible says they rent their clothes and they were so upset. But all of a sudden, you know what happened? They all together said, his fate will be our fate. Verse 15, the confession. And Joseph said unto them, What deed is this that that ye have done? What ye not that such a man as I can certainly divine? And Judah said, What shall we say unto my Lord? What shall we speak or how shall we clear ourselves? God hath found out the iniquity of thy servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also with whom the cup is found. The final test is at hand and confession is made to Joseph of their guilt. And what's going on here is Judah is saying, man, we, I guess we must be guilty. But we are not going to leave. Joseph said, hey, you guys can go and I'm keeping this one. And Judah said, no, no, you can't do that. It'll kill my daddy. I can't do that to him again. I won't do that to him again. I'm staying. I will be your servant. You let him go. I will stay. Now, true repentance had come to the brothers. Not just remorse. True repentance comes when you are more concerned with restoration and restitution than you are the cost of of restoration. True repentance comes when you say, I want to make it right no matter the cost. No matter what it costs, I want to make it right. Now very quickly at the end of the message, what I want to do, we've kind of skimmed through that story But what I want to do is I want to leave you today with some scripture on repentance, okay? Let me read for you 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11. Now I, and I'm going to read slowly so you can understand what he's trying to say. Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, this selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness is wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear. Yea, what vehement desire. 
yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. And all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. What is, this, what is the scripture saying? Repentance produces these things. Repentance, true repentance, not just saying you're sorry, not just a remorse. True, I've changed my mind. I've turned from this sin. I'm looking this way. I'm never going to go back again. True repentance is preceded by these things. What's the first one? First, we have a new carefulness. The Bible says, For behold, this selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness is wrought in you. You know what that, care, that word carefulness means? It means diligence. You see, repentance makes me turn, but diligence keeps me turned. I'm not easily turned back. I'm diligently Repentance is just an attitude that you've got to have every day. It's not a one and done deal. You have to walk in repentance every day of your life. You know, it's, you have to walk in it. It means you don't give up easily. Number two, we have a new confession. The, the Bible says, what clearing of yourselves. Those are four English words, but it's one Greek word. That phrase, what clearing of yourselves, is one Greek word. And you know what that one Greek word is? Apologia. Man, it sounds like a root word of another word we might know. Apologia. Quit living in denial of your sin. Quit lessening it. Quit defending it. How easily could Joseph's brothers have continued with the narrative that they didn't do anything wrong? But man, we are so quick to defend ourselves even when we know we're wrong. Even when we know we're wrong, we're quick to defend ourselves because our pride doesn't want us to admit that we messed up. But true repentance says, yes, I've messed up. I'm guilty. I've done wrong. A thousand times over, I've done wrong. An admission of guilt is the first step. Next, we have a new concern. The verse says, what indignation? And you know what this indignation is? This is personal indignation. Personal indignation. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm indignant at myself for allowing this to happen. It's personal frustration after having allowed the enemy to have this kind of a, a success. It's this attitude, this personal indignation that keeps you in repentance. Okay, did you know the, the Bible allows you to get mad? The Bible allows you to get mad. The Bible allows you to get mad at sin. The Bible allows you to get mad at the devil. And you need to get mad at the devil and say, how dare that devil drag me down and cause me to do that? How dare me for allowing the devil to, to drag me down into this sin? I tell you what, it'll never happen again. And that is the attitude that keeps you in repentance. Number four, a new characteristic. What fear? Prior to their repentance, they were puffed up about their sin. They were arrogant about their sin. They looked at their sin as another option. Oh, I could do what God wants me to do, but I could also do option B or option C or option D. It's okay, whatever. But after this, they don't, this fear, it's not a fear of God. It's a fear of sin. Now they fear the power and the potency of sin. Now they look at sin not as another option. Now they look at it as a rattlesnake, ready to strike. 
Next, we have a new compulsion. The verse says, what vehement desire. Man, they were so cold and indifferent whenever they sold Joseph into slavery and lied to their daddy. But now that cold and that indifference is swept away. And now there's a new passion for Christ. I love seeing true repentance. Because you know what you see when you see that? You see a softened heart. You see a prayer life that is revived. You see a faithless existence to looking around you and not being able to see anything that doesn't have the fingerprint of God on it. A new vehement desire. Number six, we have a new commitment. What zeal, what revenge. They were eagerly awaiting to put everything back in order and, and there was no hesitation. There was no drudgery. I want everything to be right. I have to vindicate those I've heard. I have to, I have, to have no problem doing this. I will confess. I will cry. I will do what I have to to make things right. But then here we come with the big one. A new conscience. In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Their guilt was gone. Now, I don't know about you, but it's not fun living with guilt. It is not fun living with guilt. That is a burden that you carry. It's so incredibly heavy. Guilt is so heavy. But you see, when true repentance is preceded by all of these characteristics, then you become clear of guilt. You become clear of sin. The stain of sin is gone. We can feel it and others can see it. Joseph put his brothers through the ringer, but in doing so, he gave them a great gift. A life without guilt. Do you feel guilty today? Is there something under the surface of your life that you've been trying to push down? And every once in a while it pops up and you're reminded of it. And you feel that guilt all over again. You don't have to live with that guilt. You can repent and be guilt free. There is a place called heaven, and there is a place called hell. And when we die, we will be in one of those two places. The only way you can get to heaven is Jesus. Jesus is the only way. By faith and trust in him. Plus nothing, minus nothing. It's not my works that save me. I can do nothing to earn salvation on my own. I hear people all the time say the words, Oh, I'm trying to get to heaven. If you try to get to heaven, you're not going to get there. Because it's by nothing that we have done. Salvation is through Jesus and Jesus alone. And you have to repent when you get saved. That does not mean that you will never sin again. That's not what that means. People say, oh, repent means that I turn from sin and I'll never sin again. That's, and so if I sin, that means I'm not going to heaven. That's not what repent means. Repent means you're changing your mind. You're agreeing with God that your sin is wrong. You repent. Repentance and faith are two sides to the same coin. To repent is to have faith in Christ. 
Not faith in a, a any, not faith in a church, not faith in an organization, not faith in a priest, not faith in Mary, not faith in anything else. Faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. There has to come that time in your life when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone to take you to heaven. And when you do that, when you repent from your sin and you repent from living life on your own terms and you turn and you say, Jesus, I put my faith and trust in you. Forgive me of my sin. Take me to heaven when I die. And He will do it right then. Salvation is a one-time thing. So if you've never done that today, do that today. Don't leave here today lost. Don't leave here today not knowing where you're going when you die. The Bible says these things I've written unto you that you may know you have eternal life. You don't have to guess. You can know so. But once you are saved, we still need to live in repentance. Not because I think I'm going to lose my salvation, but I need to... Live in repentance because, look, even as saved Christians, we can still mess up. We can still hurt our lives and we can still ruin our lives and we can still live in sin. Now, a true saved Christian will be like that and won't stay that way. But, you know, every day you have to walk in repentance. Man, if you're, if you're lost today, today's the day to come to this altar and accept him as your Savior and become a child of God. But if you're saved today, maybe you need to come to this altar and leave a sin here. A sin that you've been, we all have that besetting sin. That sin that follows us, that fights us. We all have it. I mean, I can give up things that, man, it's just easy for me to give up, but for you, it's hard. Same, you can give up things that are, man, it's easy to do, but for me, it's hard to give up. We need to repent of that sin because that sin is going to keep you from having a fellowship with Jesus. Joseph wanted so much to grab his brothers and hug them and cry with them and love them, but they were unrepentant. So he couldn't do it. Jesus wants to wrap his arms around me and you. But he can't do it if we're living in unrepentant sin.